This evening's talk is part two of the two-part talk about mindfulness. <clears throat> and this is regarding the second, third, and fourth foundations or domains of mindfulness. In beginning the talk with a question. Am I looking in the right place and in the right way for the happiness that I'm seeking? So a couple of evenings ago we explored the first foundation or domain of mindfulness, the body in the body. And this evening we'll begin by looking at the second domain of mindfulness, mindfulness of feelings, Vedna Nupasana in Pali. This foundation is particularly, potentially, uh, a particularly illuminating aspect of our practice towards directing our natural inclination for happiness and contentment to the right place and in the right way. Every experience that comes in through each of the sense doors, the body touching, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and the mind door, states of mind and thinking, provides some sort of specific information to the mind. And there are particular feelings that occur through sense door contact with all of the various phenomena that we experience. From the perspective of the Dhamma, these feelings are very simply and uh, clearly classified into three groups, we could say. Pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, and neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling, usually called neutral feeling. These feelings or feeling tones arise in response to either physical or mental stimuli. Attachment, emotional attachment, or aversion to sense door experience is a result that very often quickly follows along directly from these feelings. So for instance, when one experiences a pleasant feeling in relationship to physical or mental contact with some object, for most of us, most people, there's an almost immediate emotional attachment to the feeling or to the object or to both. And when the pleasant feeling subsides, which of course it always does, the desire to get it back or to get another one comes up quite quickly either quite overtly or subtly. And so then a craving for is in place. A craving for arises and is in place. With craving usually pretty quickly preceded uh, by dissatisfaction. And sometimes also very quickly followed by a state of dissatisfaction. So, what's happened? Our peace, our pleasant abiding, our sense of well-being has been disturbed. The nature of dissatisfaction is agitation an inner restlessness, with which in modern language trans- translates as stress, mental and physical stress. 
the experience of craving itself is experienced as some degree of a burning contraction. If we experience it and see it really clearly. So again, there's stress. When we experience unpleasant feeling in relationship to some physical or mental contact with some object, most people almost immediately experience emotional dislike or some form of aversion. Maybe fear or, or boredom or maybe something as strong as hatred or anger, disappointment. And we want to get rid of or to get away from the object or the feeling or both. And so again, our mental peace is disturbed. Our sense of well-being is disturbed. And so again, what are we experiencing? We're experiencing stress. As we begin to sense, see, and know our experiences more and more clearly, we find out that, in fact, so much of the stress, so much of the suffering in this life comes directly from one's relationship to experiencing pleasant and unpleasant feelings. When the feeling is, at least to some degree, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, neutral, often the tendency for many of us is to ignore what's going on. To not connect to the present moment's experience. And sometimes this is maybe accompanied with a subtle or maybe not so subtle state of wanting. Not being really particularly interested in being with the experience of that moment, wanting something else. I think it's quite safe to say that most of us, I won't say all of us, but most of us are intense experience junkies. If it's intense, we're likely to pay attention, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. If it's not intense, we often just don't notice. We kind of check out. We just don't bother. We might think, well, I mean, nothing's really happening. And so again, we're craving something, something. Because like nothing's really happening, so we're craving something. Or Maybe we're experiencing boredom or both of these states. Without intimate and careful attention to feelings, they have the power to disturb us emotionally. They have the power to make us suffer. An amazing thing about these feelings is that we often forget that they change and sometimes change very quickly. The same, the very same object that produced pleasant feelings in our mind, sometimes within moments, can produce unpleasant feelings in the mind. And of course, vice versa. So again, we experience attachment, clinging, and various aversive states. Forgetting is the opposite of remembering, remembering the connection that mindfulness offers to see things just as they are. So a personal practice story about this. Some of you have heard this story before. 
It's a three-month retreat story from quite a number of years ago when I was sitting a three-month retreat at the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts. And in those days, this was a while ago, in those days there were shelves in what was a small little back dining room at this retreat center for yogis to put their special stashes on or in on these shelves. And so one day I found uh, a note uh, for me um, on top of my stash from the person whose stash was right next to mine. And I had no idea who this was. I hadn't noticed it at all, who was there at all. And this note was offering me some green tea from this person's stash. A very, very pleasant feeling arose. Being noticed, very pleasant. A gift for me, very pleasant. And I happen to like green tea, so pleasant again. So I answered the note and said thank you and took some green tea and enjoyed it. Uh, The next day there was a second note on top of my stash offering me a hat. (laughs) Well, this person had noticed me going outside without one. And it was beginning to get pretty cool outside. But um, not such a pleasant feeling arose in my mind with that note. I felt impinged upon. I didn't like the attention at that point. But I answered the note politely, thanked this person, and said, I have a hat. Thank you. Then the next day there was a third note on top of my stash. And it was a question, a practice question. And a most decidedly unpleasant feeling arose in the mind. Followed by a very quick and unmindful reaction to um, write back a not very pleasant note. Very polite note, very nice note. But to write back a nasty note actually was the thought. But unfortunately, mindfulness and wise discernment (coughs) kicked in, and I didn't write back a nasty note. I just simply relaxed, (coughs) I let go, and I didn't respond at all. No response, no note. And then at that point, the notes stopped. There were no more notes. Well, at the end of the retreat, I did notice, I did, of course, take notice of whose stash was next to mine, Uh, after all that, or somewhere along with all that. And at the end of the retreat, I spoke with this man, uh, and he he said he'd gone through kind of a similar process and was very grateful after going through, he said, a fair amount of inner turmoil for a day or two, or maybe more than that, I don't remember, that I didn't answer him the last time. He said he was really happy not to feel like he had to write any more notes. (laughs) As I think probably all of you would agree, that when you feel pleasant or unpleasant as a result of contact through one of the sense doors, a sense door object, that the pleasant and unpleasant feeling is not in the external object, nor is the feeling within the internal object of attention, such as a bodily sensation or a thought. The feeling is in the mind. So what is it that is pretty much most often anyways, the root of the feeling that arises in relationship to our experiences. In my three-month retreat story, the mental feeling tone and the subsequent action of answering the first two notes and the mental feeling tone followed by a reaction in my mind with the, in relationship to the third note we're really clearly coming from a place of self. Really clearly coming from a place of me. 
capital M-E. <laughs> when we begin to see that all of the feelings that we experience are within our own mind, that we really ourselves are primarily responsible for the feelings that we experience, we begin to know that we, we really can't blame others for the way we feel. what for many of us are habituated storylines. And there's many variations of these, but things like, he made me angry. She made me feel terrible. He makes me feel so happy. This place, these people, make me feel so peaceful. Or maybe this place, these people, make me feel so miserable on and on and on. As we really begin to pay careful attention to the feelings that arise, the habituated storylines begin to lose their strength. They kind of begin to fall apart. In the light of seeing things clearly, blaming others for our pleasant or unpleasant mental feelings isn't realistic. It's not the way things really work. We have the possibility of letting go of the stories, of the myths that we have about ourselves and about others. The various beliefs that we have about ourselves. What we think we're capable of or not capable of how we define ourselves. We have the opportunity to let go of, to relinquish beliefs that we have maybe about our bodies, our mind, our emotions. Beliefs maybe that we've held onto and stuffed into the crowded closet of our mind. And instead, right now, just simply Pay attention to our experience just as it is in the moment. It's really so simple. It's hard to believe that that's all it really takes. Although, as you all know, though it's so simple, it is not so easy. The potential illuminating aspect of practice in relationship to cultivating a a careful attention to feelings is that it's at this point in our experience that we have the direct, immediate opportunity to drop our habituated reactions of attachment, clinging, and the various permutations of aversion. It's at this point in our experience of noticing the feelings of pleasant and unpleasant, or the feeling of neither pleasant nor unpleasant, neutral, that we can, in moments, just see, experience, and know bodily sensations, visual form, odors, sound, taste, the various manifestations of thought forms and know the attendant feeling tone. And that just be that. In that moment, receiving and knowing that moment in that way, there's no mental suffering. The heart, the mind isn't disturbed. It's actually a moment of ease, a moment of peace. So another, another personal story. Uh, giving birth for the first time, uh, almost 51 years ago now, was my first uh, formal teaching and practice in mindfulness. 
although it certainly wasn't called that. (laughs) The Lama's birthing method was a training in really being very fully present, awake, and aware in the process, the birthing process, that was happening, of course, in and of itself, and that I was certainly very involved with. Throughout the training the, for this Lama's birthing pro, uh, method, <clears throat> throughout the training we were told that any resistance to the process that was uh, taking place would make it extremely uncomfortable and most likely quite unpleasant, which I very quickly discovered when the birthing actually began. Getting myself out of the way of it, while at the same time being really totally present with what was a very intense process, I remained engaged, fully engaged, and aware in the midst of it all. Which was not easy in the way that we usually think of things being easy. But it was really quite okay. And actually, mostly neutral in the light of pleasant and unpleasant. Selfless engaging engagement in the birthing process allowed it to be incredibly interesting. One of the most interesting things I've ever been involved with. And really, truly filled with awe and wonderment which was very pleasant, the awe and the wonderment. It was a really powerful lesson that has continued to inform me over the years, over all these years. As I think I mentioned at one point along the way of this retreat, the Buddha tells us that we're happy when we're mindful. And there was a pervasive kind of happiness that accompanied me throughout this birthing process that I now clearly understand was there because I was really very mindfully present in and with the process. When you engage with the full presence in the physical and mental experiences that are happening in your body and mind as this retreat continues to unfold. And when any of these experiences show up as being pleasant or unpleasant, or maybe neutral, one aspect, aspect of our practice is to be mindfully aware without making something of it meaning without interpreting, without speculating, without analyzing, and without evaluating. And these are very important, this is a very important point. As we meet and connect to experience with an unfettered mindful presence, we find open-hearted interest and authenticity, which is what helps us to clarify, to bring clarity to the seeing and knowing of our experience, with the possibility of joy, spontaneous joy and um, creativity and, of course, insight emerging quite naturally. Feelings are really particularly important mental factors in developing insight into the cause of suffering. Because these feelings are what condition our mind to hold on to the pleasant or to push away or avoid or ignore the unpleasant. 
learning to mindfully observe feelings with more balance, with more equanimity, consequently with less attachment, less aversion, less identification, is an important and very helpful door to open on our way out of suffering. So so the second domain of mindfulness in our practice, contemplation of the feelings in themselves, the feelings in the feelings. An amazing aspect of mindfulness is that it has the capacity to connect directly and simply to the experiences that come in through the sixth sense doors with what we can call bare awareness. With bare awareness providing very immediate and direct access to these experiences just simply being known. And sometimes we may experience just this. But at times and maybe quite often for many people, the direct, simple knowing of phenomena may almost immediately be colored or modified by various mental factors, various states of mind. This being the third domain of mindfulness. Mindfulness of the mind. Citta Nupassana in Pali. Mindfulness of the various mental factors or states of mind that arise in relationship to experience. So for example, we go to the marketplace, the marketplace of the lunch food display here in retreat. A marketplace we go to, most of us, or most of everybody, three times a day, at least twice a day for everybody. Maybe there's attraction. Maybe there's aversion to the sights, smells. And maybe the mind wanting more of something before you've even finished what's on your plate. I'm sure that's happened to most of us. Or the marketplace of where to do walking meditation this hour. Maybe this morning, this afternoon. Or, for most of us, which shirt to put on today. Or maybe the marketplace of thinking. For instance, what should I report during my practice interview? And maybe rehearsing it over and over again before you go to your practice interview. Or spending some of the morning wondering what's going to be served for lunch today. With an attentive mindfulness, we have the possibility of recognizing that often these attractions, aversions, and ponderings are rooted in old conditioned habits of maybe old conditioned habit of needing to be in control or needing to get it right, hoping to get it right. Or maybe the habit of wanting to be noticed, wanting to be approved of. Or with food, sometimes thinking, well, maybe there's not enough. Because surely more of this will certainly make me happy. And there's more examples, but that's enough for now. All of this is actually based in some degree of fear, rooted in fear. In a moment of mindfully seeing and knowing this, 
we might just then simply relax and just let go and spontaneously respond in an appropriate and easeful way in relationship to the situation. And we may have to recognize and to do this practice a number of times, maybe many times, many, many times, before we get it, so to say. And some words from the uh, great Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj. He said, by knowing your mind, you may avoid your mind disarming you. Or excuse me, disabling you, not disarming you. By knowing your mind, you may avoid your mind disabling you. You have to be very alert or else your mind will play false with you. It's like watching a thief. Not that you expect anything from a thief, but you do not want to be robbed. In the same way, you give a lot of attention to the mind without expecting anything from it. living here in Taos, or down there in Taos, we're a couple thousand feet above Taos right now, but living in Taos, um, which I have been doing for around 18 years, a place where many people visit specifically to come to the marketplace, come to Taos to go to the marketplace. Beauty abounds abounds in Taos. I went through a period of practice when I first began living in Taos 18, 20 years ago. And I'd walk down the street, the main there's only one main street in town. I'd walk down the main street looking into the shop windows. And I'd watch my mind and my body, awareness of seeing just seeing, seeing various forms and colors, beginning with a kind of bare attention. And then I would notice the coloration in the mind of wanting, kind of leaning into, even sometimes the strong desire of seeming need in relationship to what I was seeing in the shop windows. So greed, really sometimes a fair amount of it, coloring a moment's experience of seeing. A really good practice in the midst of the marketplace, any marketplace. So I continued with this practice because I felt like I really needed to do this practice. So I continued with this practice until I, I finally found myself, after quite some time, Uh, more and more often just seeing the forms and the colors followed by simply, joyfully, and very appreciatively bearing witness to the beauty and appreciating the great skill and the great creativity of the makers of the various objects that were uh, being observed in the shop windows. to sustain and deepen in our practice, to see things as they are. Two of the most essential qualities of heart and mind that are, that are required of us are honesty and humility. Pretense, self-deception, and clear seeing are mutually incompatible. For instance, if another person notices that I'm feeling and maybe even expressing greed or some form of aversion, 
It doesn't matter if his or her image of me is shattered. What matters is that I'm willing to come face to face with these mind states. Bringing mindfulness right into the greed or fear or anger or sadness. And as you know, this isn't always easy. Tremendous interest, energy, and humility needs to sustain the observation, to see yourself as you are. And because you see yourself as you are without pretense, without self-deceit, and without judgment, you don't try to project a different image to yourself or to anyone else. Vimala Thakkar, who was one of Krishnamurti's closest students and who was a profound and powerful spiritual teacher in her own right, said the following about humility. And these are her words. That is the only austerity that is required of an inquirer. The austerity of humility to see things as they are. To see my inner being as it is, good or bad. To observe observe it as it is without defending it, without justifying it, without interpreting or judging it. Without taking pride in it and without relegating the responsibility of those states to other people. Humility is the perennial source of energy or freshness. Humility enables you to learn, keeps you pliable, perhaps to the last breath, I hope, she said. In light of Vimala Thakkar's words, there's a story that um, I heard the Dalai Lama tell about himself in a <clears throat> Dharma teacher gathering quite a number of years ago. He said that before that, a number of years ago before that, he was uh, taken window shopping in some big city to an area where there were lots of small shops that sell all kinds of mechanical parts and, and mechanical systems. The person who took him to this part of the city knew that he was uh, particularly interested and fascinated by the mechanical workings of things. So, for instance, he he likes to take apart watches and to play with them, work on them, and then put them back together again. The Dalai Lama said that he found himself looking in the windows of the shops (coughs) and at first just seeing with a very open curiosity and interest. And then he said all of a sudden he realized he wanted everything. He said he wanted all of it. He said, I didn't even know what any of it was for. I just wanted it. We've all had those kinds of experiences in varying ways, I'm sure. Are you mindful of your mind? You might ask yourself, how driven am I by my desires? How driven am I by my attachments? How driven am I by my resistance and aversions? Taking a look now at the marketplace of your inner world of meditation experience. So, for instance, a moment of deep calm. A mindful moment of directly knowing this calm. No thought about it. Just it as it is. (coughs) Just calm. Maybe even the deep calm of tranquility. And then, maybe quickly followed by grasping, wanting this pleasant experience to never end, never leave. 
Maybe there's some degree of fear that arises around losing my tranquility. Without judgment, seeing, directly seeing and knowing this experience, this experience of attachment, this too is very much part of our practice. Mindfulness is able to know the mental factor or coloration in the mind of wanting, greed within the greed itself, or the colorations of anger, or hatred, or fear, or delusion. Any state of mind can be known within itself, maybe from its very arising, its particular characteristics, how it acts, its changing nature, its ending, and its momentary sensation. It takes a lot of practice to be able to see all this. A moment of consciousness might be colored by faith or by delight or by dullness or by some form of aversion. As I'm sure you've experienced, all of you, or each of you at times, and maybe also been mindful of, each of these mental factors, these colorations, may arise in relationship to the bare awareness of any given experience, such as a breath, a sensation, a movement, a visual image, a sound, a taste, thoughts in in the form of memories or plans or projections or fantasies or images in the mind. In the Abhidhamma, which is a very clear and detailed treatise on the workings of the mind from a Buddhist perspective, there's a long and very detailed list of the many and various mental factors that may very quickly come along to accompany and color the bare awareness of any present moment experience. This degree of perception and distinction with such minute detail regarding each and all of these states of mind, it actually isn't absolutely necessary for our practice right here. It's really enough for you at this point to be mindfully aware of the more usually or ordinarily experienced colorations of any given moment of consciousness as they arise, as they quickly change, and as they cease. So for instance, mindfulness knowing delight calm, joy, kindness, faith, liking or disliking, judgment, disappointment, clinging, attachment, fear, anger, hatred, guilt, remorse, irritation, appreciation. That's a long list in itself. Knowing any of these mind states in relationship to the bare awareness of the experiences, in relationship to the bare awareness of the experiences of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, moving, touching, thinking. And again, a reminder. The essential nature of mindfulness is that there's no attitude of judging or discriminating between right and wrong, good or bad. It's just this 
in this moment, whatever it is, however it is. Within mindfulness itself, there's no grasping, there's no rejecting, no manipulation, no judging or evaluating of experience. So this third establishment of mindfulness, mindfulness of the mind, mindful awareness of mental factors, states of mind, seeing and knowing them in themselves, the colorations that come up in relationship to the bare experiences that come in through the six sense doors. The last aspect of mindfulness that the Buddha points to is called mindfulness of or contemplation of dhammas. And dhamma in this case can be translated as the truth or the way of things or natural laws, the natural laws. This domain of mindful awareness can be grounded specifically in any of the six sense doors. Again, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or thinking. This fourth establishment of mindful awareness, contemplation of dhammas, may also be grounded in the five hindrances, which are sloth and torpor, restlessness or agitation, doubt, the grasping mind, the aversive mind, and the doubting mind. The particular and wonderful and illuminating specialty, so to say, about this fourth domain of mindfulness is that whatever our experience is, it's seen through the doors of the Dhamma, seen through the doors of the way of things, through the doors of the nature of things whether experience is in the, fin- uh, the physical or the mental realm. This fourth domain of mindfulness sees and knows experience through the doors of the truth. And I think that this fourth domain of mindfulness can be fairly difficult to understand for many people. And so I'm hopefully will explaining it in a, in a clear enough way, in a simple enough way that it and make sense for you. So, example, for example. Speaking briefly this evening about just one of the insightful doors that particularly relates to the practice that practices that many of you are doing. This is the doorway of the three universal characteristics that all experiences of body and mind are imbued with. In this fourth domain of mindfulness, we can directly, experientially, pay attention to, recognize, and clearly come to know that every experience of body and mind is always changing is impermanent, anicca in Pali. Each and every phenomena of body and mind, as well as everything we perceive around us, begins and ends, arises and disappears. There are hundreds, thousands, millions of little endings, deaths, moment to moment, breath by breath. And as practice deepens and matures, it gets easier and easier to open to, to clearly see, accept, and surrender to this perfectly natural truth. What appears to be a steady flow of experience, even with the present moment awareness of consciousness itself, is not as we ordinarily perceive it to be. The reality of 
body-mind experience can be likened to the separate frames of a film. The illusion or the delusion being as though it's happening with an ongoing continuous flow. When in reality, it's all beginning and ending, arising and passing away at the most minute level, second by second by second. And it is possible with a tremendous strength of concentration and mindfulness to actually see this, know this. And some words from the Buddha. Bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, yogis, I will teach you the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana. Listen to that. And what yogis is the way that is suitable to attaining Nibbana? Here a yogi sees the eye as impermanent, sees forms as impermanent, sees eye contact as impermanent, sees whatever feelings arise with eye contact as the condition, whether pleasant or painful, as impermanent. She, he, sees the ear as impermanent, sees the mind, mental phenomena as impermanent, sees mind consciousness as impermanent, and sees mind contact and whatever feelings arise with mind contact as the object, whether pleasant or painful, as impermanent. This yogis is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana. Every experience is anicca, impermanent, which is the first universal characteristic. And because of anicca, no experience that comes in through the six sense doors is ultimately or permanently satisfying. And because that's the way it is, so many of us continue on through our lifetime searching for some thing, some experience that will finally satisfy, finally make us happy. This unsatisfactoriness and the endless search is what the Buddha called dukkha. It's usually translated as suffering. And it is the second universal characteristic. The last of the three characteristics that we uh, may come to know within this fourth domain of mindfulness is anatta. The truth that all experience, all phenomena is selfless, is totally interdependent and constantly changing. In other words, is totally contingent in its existence, both within its own seeming solidity as well as in its seeming set or seeming static place in the world. And our body, an immediately available example of this, with all of the parts and all of the functions being totally interdependent and all of it constantly, constantly in flux. All is anatta. All is empty of any separate, solid, sustaining self. If we begin to directly experience and know anicca and dukkha, impermanence and unsatisfactoriness, the third universal characteristic of anatta, or not-self, begins to reveal itself directly through our practice of mindful awareness. The not-self or emptiness of self, of all experience, of all phenomena, shows up actually quite naturally and often in unexpected and subtle ways. And we begin to really truly understand that no matter how hard we might try, there's absolutely nothing that can be clung to. Even our often very tightly grasped, seemingly set in place self-identities. The positive or wholesome identities 
and the negative or unwholesome identities. As we begin to intimately, experientially know, see and know these three universal truths, our relationship to life begins to change. Intuitive wisdom, equanimity, relinquishment, and the natural flow of a creative and compassionate life quite naturally begin to blossom within the seeing and knowing. And we really start to relax more and more deeply into simply and more and more clearly being here with things just as they really truly are. In a conversation with his student, Megiya, the Buddha offers an important and very clear teaching about anicca, anatta, and liberation. And these are the Buddha's words. Contemplation of impermanence should be cultivated for dispelling the conceit, I am. For when one perceives impermanence, Megiya, the perception of not-self is established. With the perception of not-self, the conceit, I am, is eliminated. And that is Nibbana, here and now. And so we go along in our practice. And when we're ready, this fourth domain of mindfulness, mindfulness of dhammas, opens up the beautiful doors to freedom. The simple and beautiful door to liberation which we may experience just very briefly in moments, with it eventually becoming more and more pervasive through our life. From this perspective, we could say that every single experience, every single phenomena, holds the Dhamma, holds the truth. The Dhamma, the true nature of things, the way of things, resides within everything. Simply here to be seen, to be known. If we really just take the time to experience our experience intimately and directly. If we just take the time to be really present and look carefully. The truth is right here for us to see directly through every sense door, through every so-called hindrance, through every experience of body, mind, and heart. And within each and all phenomena that's happening everywhere around us. And in some Buddhist schools, it's spoken of as within samsara is nibbana or nirvana in Sanskrit. Within the whirlpool of our ordinary lives, including our ordinary life here in retreat, within the whirlpool of samsara, if we metaphorically stand still, cool, calm, focused, mindfully attentive, In that moment, we're no longer conditioned by ignorance, by ignoring, and by being caught in the whirlpool of pleasant and unpleasant. We're no longer caught in the whirlpool of, I like it, I don't like it. No longer caught, unaware, in the whirl of continually, unwittingly, moving around and around and around the wheel in the midst of samsara, we can stop and pay an extra ordinary kind of attention, a mindful attention, and wake up. Mindfulness is the tool, the medicine, that allows concentration, joy, equanimity, intuitive wisdom, loving-kindness, compassion, to blossom 
Mindful awareness is the primary tool, the medicine for our awakening. And as it was so graphically talked about during the time of the Buddha, which I mentioned, I think, part of the other day, we take the medicine to purify the sickness and heal ourselves. We have the possibility of wandering into the natural state of the equipoise of an undisturbed mind. The world outside going on just as it is. Thoughts and feelings arising and changing, coming and going. No different than anything else in the world. Nothing to argue with, nothing to cling to. In relationship to the open-hearted receptivity of practicing with a clear and focused mindfulness, I'd like to offer you some words from Carlos Castaneda. Sorcerers understand discipline as the capacity to face with serenity odds that are not included in our expectations. For them, discipline Discipline is a volitional act that enables them to take anything that comes their way without regrets or expectations. For sorcerers, discipline is an art, the art of facing infinity without flinching, not because they are filled with toughness, but because they are filled with awe. Discipline is the art of awe said Carlos. We don't grow in a straight line, but in ascending and descending and tilting circles. And what makes this all bearable really is awe. That undefined, or undefended, excuse me, that undefended, open-hearted quality we could call awe in relationship to the way of things. The Buddha tells us, rooted in careful attention, careful attention is declared to be the chief. Accomplished in careful attention, with a mind that has developed the enlightenment factors of mindfulness and discernment, one penetrates and sunders the mass of greed, that one has never before penetrated and sundered, the mass of hatred that one has never before penetrated and sundered, the mass of delusion that one has never before penetrated and sundered. And then the Buddha goes on, just as all the rafters of a peaked house slant, slope, and incline toward the roof peak, so too when a monk, a meditator, develops and cultivates mindfulness and discernment and all the other factors of enlightenment, which are balanced effort, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. She, he, slants, slopes, and inclines toward Nibbana. can be helpful to check in now and then to see if you're practicing in ways that are really, truly moving you towards insight, towards understanding, truly moving you towards wisdom, and also truly moving you towards the heart qualities of metta and compassion. Practice that is subtly or maybe more overtly rooted in wrong ideas, in misconceptions or misperceptions, can become actually deeply rooted in the mind and accompany us along the way of our practice for years. So again, as we began this exploration this evening, a good question you might ask yourself now and then, am I looking in the right place and in the right way? for the happiness that I'm seeking. 
I'm closing the talk this evening with a short poem from Rumi. Don't try to be the sun. Be a dust mote. Lunar moth. Love the candle. Taste your life. Put your shoes on upside down. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. And thank you for listening to the Dhamma. (coughs) And we'll close our Dhamma talk evening chanting the sharing of blessings together. (coughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.